I would encourage you to pay attention. This is not an easy one. Being up front before we get to it, this is God's word for you today. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and a few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten is that the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, to give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed with betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. This earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls. It will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before 
his elders. Let's pray. O Lord, give light and life to our hearts that we might understand and believe. For Christ's sake, amen. If you're somewhere near my age, these lyrics probably, you hear them more than you, or you hear the music of them, I guess, even more than the lyrics themselves. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes, an airplane, Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Churn world serves its own needs. Don't misserve your own needs. You probably hear them if you're anywhere near your 40s. That's uh, from a band called R.E.M. At the time when they released this in the mid-90s, there was conversation about them becoming one of the greatest bands of all time. They didn't, but they were very good. This song is kind of almost a stream of consciousness, kind of word vomit of a homosexual man processing the disintegration of a postmodern culture, a postmodern world. If you remember this song, world serves your own needs, listen to your heart bleed, dummy with the rapture and the reverend and the right, right, you vitriolic, patriotic, slam fight, bright light, feeling pretty psyched to the chorus It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. The ultimate postmodern kind of critique of the American society kind of crumbling and collapsing in the 90s, the way that we watched it kind of disintegrate. And kind of using this cosmic apocalyptic language to contemplate American culture. It's the end of the world, as we know it, and I feel fine, which in many ways is perhaps, I think, the most ludicrous statement that any human could ever utter. If it's the end of the world, well, that's kind of a problematic because this world is the place where I live. It's why Earth is my favorite planet. It's the one I live on. I like the others. They're nice to look at, but this is the one where I live. This is the place where I breathe. This is the place where I eat and drink and sleep. This is the life that I live. If this world were to end, well, uh, it wouldn't be fine. I mean, ultimately for Christians it would be, but not for everyone else. And that's actually a little bit of a thought that I'd like for us to contemplate today as we look at Isaiah 24. This is a tough passage. I'm not going to kind of hide or sugarcoat that fact. It's a tough passage. It's got uh, grim content and very difficult illustrations along the way. Uh, But for us, our challenge, hopefully, is to spend just a little bit of time thinking about that idea. It is the end of the world. It is approaching. It is coming. But do I feel fine? Should I feel fine? Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. How should I feel about the end of time? Really, Isaiah has been building us, kind of setting us up for this point, kind of a turning point in the conversation. He's been giving us these, what they're called cycles of oracles, where he he kind of talks about various nations and works through a series of them until he completes his message and then takes a break and then comes back again. Uh, We've uh, watched him already preach through two separate cycles where he's worked through the various nations around Israel and including Israel in it to say, look, sin is a problem. 
Sin is a thing that earns the wrath of God, and as a result, destruction is coming. Destruction is coming upon your nation. Destruction is coming upon my nation. It's bad and very grim for everybody. He's prophesied the arrival of Assyria, then the downfall of Assyria. He's prophesied the arrival of Babylon, the downfall of of Babylon. But now in chapter 4, there's a major turn. Here we enter into Isaiah's third cycle. Now no longer concerned with nations the same way, and in fact actually dropping the formula at the beginning, an oracle against so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Now it just takes up a new kind of language. He takes up a new description and it moves from dealing with nations to dealing with the very fabric of creation itself. Now he's not talking about Tyre and Sidon. He's not talking about Assyria or Babylon. He's talking about the created order as a whole. In fact, 24 through 27 really are the description of kind of the end state of the world as we know it. It's not Michael Stipe's kind of rambling tirade against uh, folks with the initials LB like uh, we have in uh, REM's uh, masterpiece, but instead here kind of really a contemplation of this is what the cosmic order will look like in the end doesn't really deal with kind of the last day in the same way. It's not technically kind of apocalyptic literature the way that most of uh, the parts of Scripture that deal with this topic is, but describes kind of the cosmic order at the end of time. And All right, well, so let's look at kind of what is he getting at here. Hopefully, we'll see some takeaways uh, along the way. Chapter 24 begins here. This third cycle changes. We get into this new bit of information, and he begins by, again, framing this out in these cosmic terms. Behold, the Lord will empty the whole earth, the the earth itself, the entirety of the world in which we know, and will make it desolate. He's going to take the surface of the earth and twist it and distort it like it's in some sort of kind of natural calamity, and in doing so, scatter all of the inhabitants of the earth. And verse 2 then takes up kind of this a beautiful thing that's common in Hebrew poetry, which is this love, they love to rhyme ideas. Here it's rhymed ideas with opposites in order to kind of teach uh, not this but that, not left but right, not north but south, to get everything included. So it's going to be this way, this destruction. Who is it going to reach? Well, it's going to reach the people, and it's going to reach the priest. It's going to reach the slave, and it's going to reach the master. It's going to reach the maid and the mistress, the buyer and the seller, the lender and the borrower, the creditor, the debtor. It it will consume all people, all people. This is the backdrop for any conversation about kind of the end of the cosmology of the world, the end of the created order, any conversation for anything dealing with men and women, boys and girls in the created order. In fact, even the created order itself. I mean, verse 3 is pretty kind of comprehensively clear, isn't it? The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered For the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers. 
The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. I, I love kind of just that, that mental image you get there in verse 4 of like the earth itself almost weeping for the scope of the catastrophe that is coming upon the created order. This is kind of mirrored in Romans 8 where we hear of creation groaning out against the curse, groaning against uh, the consequences of sin and longing for redemption. Here, it's, it's not the longing for redemption that creation is, is groaning against. This is creation really weeping under the weight, the comprehensive weight of the wrath of God. So you have this kind of backdrop, if we're going to be looking at it like a play, uh, this is the part that sets the, you know, the, the stage behind the actors and the actresses. That the wrath of God, which has been at this point revealed against nation after nation after nation after nation after nation, now is explained kind of in more fullness. That it's not revealed ultimately against nations. It's revealed ultimately against peoples. And in fact, all peoples. And that's an important distinction for us to make. Because it's easy for us as kind of conservative Christians, many of us are conservative Christians in the West today, living in the South, it's, it's very easy for us to kind of want to kick back to the earlier chapters in the book of Isaiah and to deal with God's wrath at the people group stage. We really feel comfortable with that because what it makes it easy for us to do is to delineate who the people groups are that he's angry with versus my people group that he's not. Right? It's easy for us to take the political party we don't belong to and say, well, obviously, you know, they're going to get the wrath of God because they deserve it. You're not wrong. <laughs> the problem is actually where you then say your side is the good side to say, well, I'm part of the good guys and my political party is the good guys. Or that sports team are the bad guys and my sports team are the good guys. Or my, you know, cultural connection of some kind versus my cultural connection. It, it makes it so easy for us, kind of again, at that national level to say, hey, when I read the Old Testament, it talks about Israel, that I'm going to substitute in the United States because the United States is the greatest nation in human history. Friends, hear me say it. The United States is the greatest nation in human history really is. I've, there's no doubt on that. I've studied enough world history. I have no doubt about that. It's the greatest nation in human history. The only place where the United States are mentioned in the entirety of the Old Testament is thinly referenced in the nations that disappear before the wrath of God. We are not Israel. We're not. You see, that's part of kind of this idea that's kind of being defunct here in these first handful of verses in chapter 24 is this safety to be able to say, look, well, it deals with other people and it doesn't deal with me. That when it comes time to have a conversation about the wrath of God, when it comes time to have a conversation about the end of time, when it has a conversation about dying and what comes after death, that's for other people, that's not for me. And I would say even in evangelical circles and confessional reform circles, this was one of those things I think we really struggled with with our definition of missions coming out of the 80s and 90s. So much of how we practice missions in the 80s and 90s was the idea that these poor whatever category of person 
needed Jesus, but implicitly because I already have him, because I'm one of the good guys who's got it figured out, and they're not. And interestingly, these first four verses in chapter 24 are kind of undo that idea. That when the end of time happens, when the created order arrives at its natural conclusion, everyone, high or low, rich or poor, boy or girl or confused somewhere in between, everyone will have to interact with the wrath of God on their own terms, on God's terms with them individually. They'll have to interact with God's anger. They're going to have to interact with it, the destruction of the created order. And I think, friends, we forget how significant we're talking about. We're going to get to that in a moment. But the very fabric of time, space, energy, and matter will all be altered in these days. Well, all right, so there's an easy thing. Uh, this is a correction of me wanting to say, well, that deals for other people. That doesn't deal for me. Verses one through four say, no, no, friend, that's just ignorant to think that it doesn't apply to you, that it won't matter to you, that it won't at some point uh, be the most important thing you ever have to deal with. But verses five and six then explain why it's such a big deal. Right? Why is it such a big deal that all of the individual people that have ever lived what do we have, seven billion people on planet Earth right now? I mean, how many billions of people that means to get up to this point? If you, if you do a, a standard birth rate for today and work it out over an average lifespan, there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five billion people on planet Earth when the first flood, you know, when the flood happened. Um, just the best guess. We're talking there are billions and billions and billions of humans. Every one of them has to interact with God and his perfect holiness What's the issue? Verses five and six. The earth lies defiled. Now, that's a word that eh, in America today, we don't really use that frequently. And when we do, it doesn't carry kind of great emotional punch to it. I mean, if we went to a restaurant and there was a a bug in our food or something, like, well, this place defiled. We would never say that. It's not a word that we use and carries no kind of emotional freight when we would say it. That is not true for the people who would have read this. The idea of being defiled would have been a a kind of quintessentially Jewish idea, but an extremely important one because it meant not just dirty, but profaned in such a way that it would remove from the presence of God himself. So not like dirty, like I forgot to wash my hands after I went to the bathroom. We're talking like profane repugnant, repulsive to God, isolating and removing from the presence of God. And what happens in verse uh, five? The earth itself, the created order itself lies defiled before the Lord. Why? It's defiled by those who inhabit it. Those who live on planet earth, that's unfortunately, friends, you and me, all of those people listed in verses one through four. And specifically, why is the earth profane before the Lord? Because these men and women, boys and girls, buyers and sellers, lenders and borrowers, creditors and debtors, all of us have violated, we've transgressed the laws of God, violated the statutes of God and broken the everlasting covenant. Now, if you run in PCA circles, that's this denomination, uh, if you run in them for more than about seven and a half minutes, you will hear the term covenant. 
It's a, probably one of the most common terms uh, in, um, in, in our denomination. It should be. It's a good biblical term. Obviously, it's here. Our Covenant College, that's our college. Covenant Seminary, that's our seminary. Uh, more covenant churches than we can count. I grew up at Christ's Covenant. I've worked at a different covenant in my career. And covenant's everywhere. Why? Well, because historically, the way that this, this idea of covenant is uh, a covenant is a most holy and sovereign agreement between God and man, but the covenant is really the way you think of it is it's the terms of how God will treat his people and how his people will behave. It, it is the entirety of the relationship between God and man. Think of it this way. It's like... Uh, if you were ever, you rent a house, it really doesn't matter how much or how well or how poorly you get along with the the landlord. What really matters with the landlord is what is on that piece of paper that you both signed. How much money you've got to pay her, right? How, How she's going to take care of the property, what you have to do in order to make sure that you don't break things and what happens when it gets broken, who repairs what and how quickly they get repaired. It's the terms of the relationship. Because again, you think about it. If you got a landlord that you get along with really well, you're really friendly, you go out and you know, you you have meals together once a month and then the legal agreement is wretched, they're ripping you off, the place is trashed, they never fix anything, but boy, you get along well with them, does that matter at all? It's the legal document that determines the relationship. In terms of biblically, covenants are the legal documents that determine God's relationship with mankind. And when he made, this is what's being referenced here, when he made Adam in the garden, he made a legal document for Adam and him both. And it was this, if you live perfectly, you live forever. But if you sin, you die. One shot. Now, the idea probably being that there was probably a trial period that that would have ended at some point. But you live perfectly, you live forever. There'll be no grief, there'll be no tears, there'll be no death, there'll be no sorrow, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no sadness. You will have the perfect life forever. In Genesis 3, it doesn't read like it happened very long. Adam and Eve were like, "Eh, okay, and then they immediately go and sin. And what happens? Well, that perfect life forever is lost, instead violating the laws of God, the statutes of God, and even broken the everlasting covenant, and what happens when you break that covenant of life? If you live perfectly, you live forever. If you sin, you die. This is why it's such a comprehensive problem, because uh, everybody that is born of Adam, everyone that descended from Adam, everybody that is related to Adam is under the consequence of his covenant. Again, we think about this kind of like the presidency, and I I like to use this, my favorite example of this, it's so ridiculous. If our current president or the next one that is elected, if he or she decided to declare war against Canada, that would be a terrible idea, wouldn't it? We like Canada. It's like America Junior. We really love it. They're wonderful. We appreciate them. They appreciate us. We're great allies. But if we declared war against Canada, if our president he or she, declared war against Canada, who goes to war with Canada? 
can I go visiting Canada? It's like, ah, I want to go on vacation. I'd love to go up. To, I'd love to go see Montreal. I mean, I know the president's declared war, but I'm going to go visit Montreal as an American citizen. What happens when I get to Montreal? Does it go well for me? No, why not? Because when the president declares war, everybody that's a part of that country goes to war as well. Whether they want to or not, whether they try to run from it or not, whether they try to go AWOL or not, it does not matter. Once the president declares war with a nation, we are at war with that nation. Now, in this situation, Adam declared war against God. He thumbed his nose at the Lord, he dishonored the Lord, and he declared war against God as the worst president in human history. This should give you great comfort. Does not matter how bad our presidents ever get, they will never surpass Adam, right? Worst president ever declared war against the God who made him. One of the two people he could talk to, his wife and the Lord, declares war against the Lord. But as a result, who goes to war? Everybody. Every man, woman, boy, or girl that's born of Adam forever goes to war with him. It's actually why it's so significant, why the entire gospel relies upon the virgin birth. Because guess who Jesus is not related to? (laughs) Adam! He's not born of an earthly father. He's born of a heavenly father. Right, so all of these people, verses one through four, have sinned against the Lord. Uh, They've broken that everlasting covenant. You have the judgment of God that's being worked out. And as a result, the earth itself is profaned. The earth itself is defiled. The entirety of the created order is in some sense put away from God. And you think, well, okay, I mean, I guess that sounds bad. To be put away from God, that, that's probably not good. I mean, I get it, but in the classic American sense, what have you done for me lately? Like, it doesn't, I guess, some days really feel that bad, I guess, right? I mean, we look at the world around us, and it's a terrible place to live. Sometimes, well, they're really great days, sometimes. Is it really that bad to be at war with God? Well, verses 7 through 13 work through just one illustration, kind of an extended illustration, with lots of minor illustrations. But one kind of major idea of what God's wrath will look like in the end. Now, this isn't what it looks like in the short term. This isn't what it looks like today. It's not what it looks like yesterday or the day before. This is what it looks like when the created order kind of ends kaput at the end, when it runs its final course, when it gets to the end of its journey. And it's interesting, the major idea in verses 7 through 13, well, let's let's see if we can get them as we unpack some of the lesser illustrations. The wine mourns. Well, there it is, right there at the beginning. The wine mourns. And that's weird. What an odd illustration, Isaiah, that the wine is crying, it's grieving. Well, that was because wine served one kind of primary function throughout the entire Old Testament. Whenever you hear wine referenced in the Old Testament, it's referenced almost exclusively, unless it's in the context of saying, don't get drunk. It's referenced almost exclusively as a portrait of joy, gladness, and blessing. So you can really, when you're talking prophecy particularly, equate wine with happiness and God's blessing. That's why 
when Israel uh, blesses Judah, I think it is, right? The, the blessing that he has is, there's going to be so much wine for you, you're going to have to wash your clothes in it. Which, I mean, for most of us, you hear as an American thinking, washing my clothes in wine seems wonderfully inefficient. Because the second I wash it in wine, I then have to wash it again in something else. And everything I would wear at this point in history would probably end up being some kind of gross purplish brown color. And I hate that color. Why would I want, no, that's not literally washing it in wine. It means that you're going to have so much blessing, so much joy, so much wealth that even laundry service is kind of indicative of God's blessing. You can't get away from God's wealth. So here in verse 7, what's happening? Wine, the portrait of blessing, the portrait of joy, the portrait of wealth and gladness is now doing what? The wine itself is grieving. The vine languishes, and now we get to see really the end of verse 7, the consequence. Joy has left. Gladness have left. Happiness is gone. It's sorrow. Verse 8, the mirth of the tambourine is stilled. Uh, At that point, tambourines, you know, thinking joyful, not just crazy noise. The noise of the jubilant, the party is gone. The mirth of the lyre, you know, their, their version of the piano or guitar is gone. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink has even become bitter to those who drink it. This portrait of, of a people that enjoyed life, the joy is gone. The fun is gone. The happiness is gone. The city that used to be filled with these kind of delighted people that have a, a happy and wonderful life, that city is now a wasted city, verse 10. It's even broken down uh, so that even the houses, you can't go into them. It, it's so destroyed that the gladness is so broken and gone that even the city itself is unlivable. Verse 11 makes it clear there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. There's an outcry for lack of joy, lack of blessing, lack, lack of, of delight, and what's the next clause? Man, this is such a grim statement. All joy has grown dark. All joy has grown dark. Now, some of us are immediately going, well, like, that's not that big of a thing because, like, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel that much joy, I guess. Wrong answer, actually. <laughs> we, and most of us in, in this great nation of ours in the time in which we live, experience so much joy that we don't realize we experience it. Our life is actually filled with so much joy that it numbs us to everything. And I will give you an example. The food that we eat. Most of us don't tend to think that we like actually taste food and at least some of it tastes good. And that provides some sort of positive stimuli to us until some of you got COVID and then you lose your taste buds for how long and man, it changes everything. I watched a video just it was a couple weeks ago, I guess, from a lady in the UK who had, she was one of the first folks in the UK who had gotten COVID and it had taken her taste like entirely. And I don't mean like things tasted a little off, like she lost the ability to taste anything at all and did not taste another thing until like a month ago. That is a long time not to taste anything at all. And they gave her something, I forget what it was. It didn't even taste good, but she just started weeping uncontrollably. 
Like just, like we're talking like that kind of shoulder-racking sobs because there was some sort of positive stimulus in her mouth. She could taste something, anything. There was a joy of a kind. Think about music. When we sing, it sounds beautiful in here. Again, I love listening to y'all sing it. It stirs my heart so much. But even if you did sing terribly, I could go get in my car and hit play on the radio and listen to something that I wanted to listen to that sounded more lovely than you if you sang poorly, which you don't. (laughs) We have beautiful babies in the church. We have handsome men and lovely women. We have pleasant friends. We, We have lives that actually have so much joy kind of welling over that it's hard for us sometimes to even remember how much it is. It's hard for us actually to think, I think sometimes to genuinely appreciate how joyful we are because it's just so much positive stimulus, stimuli in our lives. Yeah, it's, uh, some of you remember the book, if you've read it, The Five Love Languages. It's an okay book, you don't really need to read it that much to know the ideas, really. The, the rough idea is there's five different mechanisms that humans communicate love back and forth. And usually, you can kind of discern which ones uh, you are the most uh, delightful in receiving, the ones you appreciate the most in receiving, and the ones that are most natural for you to give. Uh, right? For me, certain ways that minister to me that make me feel loved, there are certain things that I do and do well and some things I do terribly. I am a wretched gift giver. Right? It's number five on the list. I'm dreadful at it. I don't do it well. I know that. It's not in my wheelhouse. I have friends on the opposite side. That's their number one way. Right? But it's interesting, even in the book, the argument that they're making is uh, for those of us that struggle with love or really have grown up in worlds that are very unloving, it's very easy for us to look at which you know, one or two are the most important to us. But for people who experience lots of love, who are well cared for, who are well blessed, who are, who are well, you know, have all sorts of affection poured out, they can't distinguish it because they're so full you can't tell the lack And in many ways, I think that's probably how we are, most of us currently in our current culture, with pleasure and with joy and with delight and with blessing, is that it's so full that we're left getting irritated at stupid things, like when a car cuts us off in traffic, ruins our day. Please, we're driving a car. How cool is that? Right? How many thousands of years of human history would have melted their head the idea of getting inside a metal box with wheels and driving 70 miles an hour down the interstate together and know that you're probably going to stop at the end and probably not too quickly so it doesn't hurt you? Amazing things to think about. Or if we really get bored enough, we could use our money to hop inside a gigantic metal coffin with wings and fly halfway across the world. And go see something that's amazing. We have this kind of overabundance of joy. And so this idea of kind of verse 11 needs to kind of percolate in our brains a little bit. That realistically, the, the wrath of God that's coming, this judgment that's going to be revealed against the created order is such that joy itself is removed from the equation. All joy has grown dark. The next sentence, next clause is just awful, isn't it? The gladness of the earth is banished. 
desolation is left in the city, the gates are barred into ruins. For thus shall it be in the midst of the earth among the nations. So again, all, this is what the people, this is what the created order will experience. And then now using kind of an agricultural illustration, two of them, to then let us ex- understand what it means. The same way that in a harvest season, an olive tree is harvested. How do you harvest the olives out of an olive tree? Well, you put down a cloth underneath it, and then you get a big stick, and you beat the tree until all the olives fall out. And the harder you can it, the more they fall out, right? Onto your nice cloth, and you pick it up and carry it away. Or, further yet, the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. This is actually a more grim illustration because this is the point where all of the grapes have already been harvested. And then you send the workers through the second time to pick the leftovers of the leftovers so the only thing left on the vine are the half raisins that are nasty and nobody actually wants to eat. The destruction is comprehensive, violent, and total. And I think for many of us, it's easy for us to think about God's anger kind of in concept because we never actually think about what that means. I mean, realistically, how many of us, even just this calendar year at all, don't, do not raise your hand on this. This is rhetorical, please. But how many of us this calendar year have stopped and thought that every single man, woman, and child that we will interact with this calendar year will at some point be confronted with their creator whose wrath will remove joy forever. I mean, we don't think in those categories, do we, most of us? I mean, when we evangelize, we're like, hey, come to church with me. I love my church. You should love my church too. I love that. You should do that. That's great. Please don't stop. But I think there's a sense in which we lost a little bit of the urgency because we think of God's wrath kind of in the the ether, in, in kind of the abstract. And thinking these dear precious people that I love so much, if they do not know Christ when they meet their maker, they will lose all joy forever. Now, the New Testament speaks of this a bit more directly where it talks about really our resurrected bodies, and this is in the good and necessary consequences category that we talked about from Sunday school today. But really, people, there's two different categories of people. There are those that are in Christ and there are those that are not. And at the resurrection, both peoples are given bodies, right? Humans are by definition body and soul, both. The part that is seen and the part that is not. You're not fully human without both. So at the resurrection, those that are in Christ will receive their own bodies back, our own bodies back, but bodies that are made, equipped to enjoy God forever. I don't fully understand how that's different than this one, except for the fact there's no aches and pains. Um, Probably doesn't mean I'm going to sing any better, but it probably means I'll get less frustrated about it, to be truthful. Right? Doesn't mean I'm infinite, doesn't mean I'm perfect, doesn't mean, I mean, in the sense of like the perfections of all of God's character. Means I'm morally righteous and ready to serve the Lord with the fullness of body. But we forget that the other category of person has a resurrected body as well. 
And the difference, though, is that their body is not resurrected unto life. They're not raised and given a body that's equipped to serve God forever. They're raised and given a body that is equipped to endure his wrath forever. And I'm really going to be honest with you. I'm so thankful the Lord does not explain more about that in his scriptures. He, that's introduced kind of categorically, the big picture category, but does not walk us through exactly the ins and outs of what it means to have a body raised unto death. What a horrible thought. That those that know not Christ will have an eternity of a joyless, lifeless, living death existence in the wrath of God. Well, why? Well, because in some fashion, verses 14 through 16, the Lord is glorifying himself through all of this. There's a major category change, a a break uh, in uh, the content from 13 to 14. Your ESV helpfully puts a one-line space there that you could very easily catch or not if you read too quickly. Major break in the tone, right? These, they, these people, some people, we don't know who these, they are yet, but these, they, them, they're lifting up their voices and they're singing to joy, singing for joy, and specifically singing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. God's glory. So interestingly, in a created order that's imploding, in a created order that's dying, in a, in a world that is even defiled and profaned before the Lord, you have these voices ringing out. The voices of the people of God. And they shout, and I love how you get to see now the kind of the comprehensive nature of the church, the people of God. They shout from the west in verse 14. In the east in verse 15. The coastlands of the sea, the, the, the ends of the earth, this again comprehensive language of the entirety of the earth now, not the cosmic created order, but a redeemed people. Cry out for the glory of the Lord from the far ends of creation. We praise the Lord. We honor Him even in the midst of these um, evils around us. Verse 16, even getting the idea of the traitors that are going to be even ultimately in our midst. God's people not captivated by the joys of the earth, but captivated by the joys of the triune God. The praise of Christ, the delight in his person and work and in his kingdom, the service of that great king, the Lord Jesus. Even and then building into verses 17 through 23, which then goes to explain what the cosmic reign of this God looks like, at least in the short term, not ultimately in the long The terror and pit and snare are upon you, inhabitant of the earth. Again, this destruction, comprehensive destruction, getting all of God's creatures. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. Who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. Again, you can't get away. God will reign. His wrath will be satisfied. The windows of heaven are open. The foundations of the earth tremble. Why, verse 19, the created order is unmade. That's really kind of the way to think of it. 
The earth is utterly broken, it's split apart, it's violently shaken, it staggers like a drunken man, it gets knocked over uh, like a a hut in the middle of a storm. Uh, the, the, The weight of God's wrath undoes, it unmakes creation. And you have to, I mean, realize that we probably don't think of it in these categories often enough or well enough, but this created order that we live in now when the new heavens and new earth are made, it's not just taking this created order and doing it again without sin. Right? I think probably most of us tend to think of it kind of intuitively like that way by accident. Think that everything that I know about creation now continues over into the new heavens and new earth is just without sin. It's the same without sin. Wrong. Now, there are elements of continuity, namely you and me, Christ Jesus, the triune God, but there's immense amounts of discontinuity, totally different. That's part of what so much of the prophecy in Revelation and other places gets at, like even the things that you think are great in this created order, like gold, meh, in the next one, meh, <laughs> not really that great. Even the things that you value in this creation, they're not really that important because everything is new and greater and grander. The animals in this created order will pale in comparison to the animals in this created order, which is a crazy thing to think about because I was really hoping to ride a T-Rex when I get to the new heavens and new earth when they're not metasauruses and don't want to eat me, but uh, I'll have to find something else to scratch that itch, I'm sure. The created order passes away in verse 19. It's going to eventually even be remade in something new because the sin, the weight of sin that rides, uh, uh, rests upon it. Verse 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. In heaven, you have your angels that are uh, punished for their sin. The kings of the earth, even the mighty men, uh, the rulers of the lands will be punished. Everyone will be punished. And verse 22, will be destroyed with the destruction of his temper, his wrath, his anger. Verse 23, again, the cosmic nature of this. The moon will be confounded. Why would the moon be confounded? Because God's wrath is not just against people. It's the entire created order that gets consumed. Right? You think about that's part of the the rainbow in the sky. It reminds us he's never going to destroy the world by water ever again. Because next time it will be fire. It won't be water. You don't have to worry about that. It's going to stop raining today at some point, maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after, but it's not going to flood the the entirety of the earth. You don't have to worry about it flooding because it's going to burn, all of it. The moon will be confounded. The sun will be ashamed. Ultimately, why? The Lord of hosts will reign and his glory will be before his people, his elders, the cosmic reign of God. Okay, what do we do? With a passage like this, it's the end of the world, should we be? Michael Stipe, should we be REM? It's the end of the world and I feel fine. Well, I'm, there's an element of that. that They're not entirely actually wrong on that one. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you know Christ and know his redemption, if you have justification, if you've been forgiven sin in Christ, if you have received his work for you, if you know him, There is a sense in which for you, yeah, it is. It is fine. 
That's my favorite chapter, Romans 8. What can separate me from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? Can the end of the world separate me from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? No. Not even the end of the world can do that. So there is a sense in which, yeah, it's the end of the world and I feel fine and I should. But perhaps, maybe there's two ways where I shouldn't. One, if you don't actually know if you know Jesus, you shouldn't feel comfortable about that. Right? You really, you really shouldn't feel comfortable about that at all. That should make you very, very nervous. Right? I mean, using a ridiculous and horrible illustration, but it might teach the point. Let's say we all knew that we were getting ready to go to a hospital and another part of the world in which every single patient and every single person that worked there had the Ebola virus. Now, I pick Ebola because I'm not sure I can think of a virus that's nastier or that I would want less than the Ebola virus, right? You know what happens with the Ebola virus, right? You melt from the inside out, and you functionally bleed to death from the inside out where any part of your skin won't contain your blood. It's a horrible way to die. You liquefy. It's awful. Now, realistically, if we all knew we had to go work in a hospital like that where everybody had it, and we knew there was one way to be treated before we got in there, we would be fairly preoccupied with whether or not that treatment was ours. I'm not sure I think I would forget. Did I take my pills today or not? Like if the choice is between my insides turning to goo and melting out my ears or taking some pills, I'm probably going to pay attention whether or not I took those pills. I'm probably going to be like, hmm, I wonder if I took my antibiotics today. That's probably a good thing for me to know. It would consume my life, wouldn't it? I would be 100% occupied with do I have the proper treatment in place because I don't want to die like that. And friends, there's some of us in here that kind of floated along and have never actually stopped to think about do I know the Lord Jesus at all? And if you're in that category, friends, end of the world, you shouldn't feel fine yet because you're not. Secondly, and and finally, and kind of perhaps maybe more pointed for most of us, is maybe to add a sense of perspective. To add a sense of perspective to the world. Realistically, uh, I've told a number of the elders this, I think we're getting ready to enter into what I suspect is going to be one of the most unpleasant, unpleasant presidential elections of my entire life. I, I think this one's actually going to surpass the last one in level of unpleasantness. That's just what I think. And I th- suspect there's going to be a lot of Reformed-type Christians that are very discouraged over the next three years. I don't know at what, because I can't see the future. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I suspect we're going to have some very significant discouragements coming. And I suspect it will add a wonderful sense of perspective that instead of getting preoccupied with the competency or lack thereof of our current administration or the competency or lack thereof of the next administration, whoever that might be, to have this idea in the back of our mind that every single thing that I interact with is either going to have to answer to their creator or it will be consumed by their creator. And that's it. 
I mean, you think about it, realistically, what's the only thing you can take with you into the life to come? It's the people sitting next to you. The chairs in here are gonna burn. The building's gonna burn. Your body, it all's gonna pass away. The only thing that goes with us into the life to come, the people sitting around us. It might add a little bit of a sense of perspective to our lives and how we live and how we think if we know that everybody in this room is gonna have to meet their maker. And we want them to be ready for that. And our neighbors have to meet their maker and we want them to be ready for that. And I'm gonna meet my maker and I wanna be ready for that. And you need to be ready too. Because no matter how much money this town has, it does not protect us once we die. The judgment on the whole earth. That's how the ESV titles it. And in that sense of perspective, I think probably two things are gonna happen. One, we will find a lot more joy in Jesus. Realistically, a lot more joy in Jesus because his salvation that he accomplished on the cross, that he gives freely to his people, that he offers at no expense to you but all expense to him, suddenly makes a lot more sense because you see what it did. And secondly, I'll add probably a little bit more of a sense of purpose and urgency to how we interact with everybody instead of being so angry over such stupid things. And we live in just, I think, one of the angriest times. And it's largely over the stupidest stuff. And I think so much of it's because we've lost the content of Isaiah 24. And praise God that if we are in Christ, this takes on a very different tone as we look forward to the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Even these really hard parts that make us think so <laughs> difficultly. And we thank you that in our weakness, you're still strong. And we thank you that you do invite us to be a part of your kingdom and a part of your family. Might we, Lord, have a greater sense of urgency about the coming judgment. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.